From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the massive college admission scandal that broke in March of last year ensnared prominent business people, well-known actors, and college coaches at California's top universities. And at the heart of the conspiracy was conman Rick Singer, who masterminded rigging SAT tests, faking athletic profiles, and bribing coaches to get the children of wealthy parents into so-called elite schools. Wall Street Journal reporters Melissa Korn and Jennifer Levitz detail Singer's elaborate operation and the loopholes in the admissions process that enabled it in their new book, Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. They join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And a special welcome to KVCR listeners in the Inland Empire. We're so glad to have you with us. On today's show, the college admission scandal, where California universities and families have figured prominently. Well, the fallout continues. Last week, the founder of Hercules Capital, a Bay Area venture capital firm, was sentenced to six months in prison for his role in paying $450,000 to boost his daughter's college test scores and bribe a tennis coach at Georgetown. Also last week, a former UCLA men's soccer coach pleaded guilty to taking hundreds of thousands in bribes for his help admitting two students to the soccer program. It's been more than a year since federal prosecutors charged 50 people in the largest known college entrance scam. And in that time, Wall Street Journal reporters Melissa Korn and Jennifer Levitz have been looking at the weaknesses in the admissions process that were ripe for exploitation and into the person at the center of the scheme, Rick Singer. Their new book is titled Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admission Scandal. Melissa Korn, Jennifer Levitz, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And, you know, congratulations on your book. In it, you really talk about how Rick Singer had clearly a couple of key preferred ways that he liked to exploit the weaknesses in the college admissions process, namely cheating on tests and bribing coaches. And so I'd love to just go through some of the ways that he did that. Let's uh, start with testing Melissa Korn. Can you explain what the process was there? Sure. So Singer really understood the admissions process and then he understood how to take advantage of it, as you said. So on testing, he would encourage his clients to have their teens tested for learning differences, which would allow them then to get special accommodations when they took their SAT or ACT exam. Uh, they could get extra time, and if they got enough extra time on the test, they could actually choose where to take the test, uh, not just at their high school or local testing center, but at one of the testing centers that Singer essentially controlled by paying off a site administrator and a proctor. So the student would go to that test site, they would take the test, uh, the proctor that Singer paid off, Mark Riddell, would then fix their wrong answers after the fact. In some cases, he would uh, help coach the student through the test during the exam itself if the, if the teen was kind of in on it. Or in uh, one case, he took the test on behalf of a student who was homesick in another state. And in terms of when you were mentioning learning differences, he also knew doctors who would basically be sympathetic or even suggest that someone had a learning disability, even if it wasn't the case? Correct. He uh, would refer his clients to particular uh, doctors, uh, often um, a neuropsychiatrist, neuropsychologist, uh, who would 
do this battery of tests to determine whether somebody needed the extra time. And uh, it's a very uh, subjective set of questions and tests. So uh, if you have a more perhaps generous doctor, you're going to get the diagnosis that you need in order to get the extra time. And in terms of this person, Riddell, that you talk about, I mean, in that one case where he was able to take a test for somebody, it really showed just how little there was in terms of checking an ID or based on what the person looked like who was coming in to take the test. Well, it helps if you pay off the person who's in charge of the testing site. Now, one of the people who was a site administrator uh, who uh, worked with Singer has pleaded guilty, one has not. Uh, but yeah, if you're the one in charge of saying, here's what ID you need and here's who's going to be in what room and here's who needs to sign off on everything. If you're the one making those decisions and you're getting money on the side to make those decisions go a certain way, it's a lot easier to to work the system. Yeah, uh, though it, it sounded like the system was pretty weak even before he paid them off. Absolutely. And there had been some uh, cases of people taking tests for others over the years uh, for money. Uh, some of those have been caught. Others, uh, you know, went on for quite a while before being caught. But uh, and Singer kind of his system evolved a bit as as the regulations and ID requirements and things like that changed. But it really does show just how little oversight there is in so many parts of the admissions process. And Jennifer Levitz, can you talk about the athletic side of it, how he was able to get kids into schools through basically the side door of the athletic coaches, um, fake athletic profiles? How did he do that whole operation? Yeah, sure. Well, Rick Singer was a former coach himself. He was a former basketball, college basketball coach, and he learned a couple very interesting uh, helpful things to his scam, which is that there's an incredible advantage given to athletes in the college admissions process, even walk-on athletes. Um, another thing is that coaches of these lower-level sports, you know, the, the less prestigious ones, not less prestigious but less visible, water polo, tennis, uh, sailing, crew, they, uh, they are often having to fundraise a lot for their own programs. And they, they don't necessarily like that. And they also are not being paid as much as some of the high-profile sports, and they can be resentful of that. So he has that knowledge in mind, and he figures out a scam where he can go to a coach and say, look, let me help you meet that fundraising quota and maybe give you a little money too. And all you have to do is put this person on your list of walk-ons um, and let admissions know. And so then we know admissions is so busy, they're just going to say, well, the coaches vouch for them. We're going to make sure they meet minimum requirements. Um, and then the interesting part of Singer's scam was that he wasn't just getting in athletes. He, he, he really, this was about getting in kids who often didn't even play the sport. So put them on that list of walk-ons. He knew that, that often coaches had a lot of, of, of leeway in their programs. There wasn't a lot of oversight in some cases. So he could just, they could put them on that roster and then the kid never has to come to practice, but the program has received money. In some cases, the coaches. Um, now, some coaches have pleaded guilty. Some have uh, have pleaded not guilty. Uh, but that's that's how that worked. And to get them to that point where he could present them as athletes, so you know he had to have buy-in somewhere in that in that college. So that would be the coach. Um, or, or someone else in one case uh, is allegedly accused, like a higher level person. So he had to have someone 
um, corrupt inside the college. And then he'd get these athletic profiles together to make this kid into an athlete because the coach needed something to present to higher ups to say, look, this kid really is an athlete. So to do that, that's where you had the fake profiles come into play, which would include uh, phony awards and travel teams and just all sorts of accolades and, and things that, quite frankly, would have been you know, pretty easily checkable for the colleges in some cases. Um, and in some cases, these went, they, they were pretty elaborate where they even would pose the kid, um, in one case in a pool, another case on the erg, to show, yes, they rode crew or they did water polo. And then this package, the coach would now have to be able to, to further the scheme inside the college. Right. There were stories of kids posing in Speedos and water polo caps to pretend that they had actually played water polo when there wasn't even that program at their high schools or even using photos of other athletes at other schools and passing them off as the kid. And one of the other things that I was struck by was how much he did this in California. I mean, the experience that you talk about of him being an assistant basketball coach was his time at Sacramento State. Right, Jennifer Levitz? Yes. That's right. Yes. Um, yeah, you, he, he started off at Sacramento State. Uh, he was a, a successful coach. Um, he was, you know, well-liked. He was very hard-driving. Uh, but then he became a college admissions counselor, and he took that, that knowledge and was able to build this network uh, that was very California-heavy but did expand around the country. And what he did is he got coaches on board, and then he would get them to introduce them to other coaches at other schools around the country. And, you know, in some cases, he would even pay that first coach a finder's fee to bring in another corrupt coach. Wow. And then ultimately, he moved to Newport Beach uh, around 2012 to be near these wealthy clients because his clientele was really building up. And one of the things that uh, I was really struck by, Melissa Korn, was how you were able to put together really a profile of him um, that suggested uh, that he might end up doing these kinds of things, things about his personality and character that you felt like contributed to basically the draw to turn into a con man like this. Can you talk about some of those things that you found in his background? Right. So really from, from a very young age, Singer was extremely competitive. Everybody who knew him from childhood on up uh, talked about how how driven he was to win. So he wanted to win. He was also just an intense person uh, at everything he did, whether it was swimming laps in the pool for exercise or uh, working out to lose weight when he was a teenager or uh, when he briefly had a foray into working for a call center company, you know, really pushing the employees at the call center to do more and more. Uh, so there was no kind of part way for, for Singer. So he wanted to win. He would go to great lengths to get that win. And he also tended to embellish things uh, from time and again, from again, when he was a kid, it was never just, he hit a, he hit a ball. It was always a grand slam or a home run. You know, it, he never won a game. He won by 50 points on basketball. Uh, and those, we see those hints, you know, from an early time. And then you see, oh, that, uh, that kind of almost what seemed to be some flexibility with the truth uh, would come into play as he was helping guide some of these high school students toward college in uh, 
exaggerating or outright lying on their college applications. Right. Like even to the point where he would suggest that kids claim that they were a person of color, Hispanic or African-American when they were not those kinds of embellishments or even just writing the college essays for the kids, which sort of were some of the early scams that he pulled. The other thing that I was struck by uh, that you write about was that he really wasn't a child of means. I think you describe him as lower middle class. Yeah, he was, uh, he grew up, you know, in a perfectly comfortable Chicago suburb, but he was surrounded by people who were a little bit more comfortable than he was, perhaps. And he, you know, from people that we spoke to who knew him back then, he seemed to just really have this, this gnawing hunger for something more. He wanted to be able to prove at some point that he had made it. So he did get quite wealthy doing this uh, college counseling. He probably would have been fine if he had just stuck to the the more kosher elements of the college counseling business, but he really did make it big once he was working with these high profile clients and getting large payoffs. He bought a very nice house in Orange County in California. He uh, drove a nice car and all that stuff, but he wasn't really that into the flashy stuff. It was almost that he just wanted the money as a sign that he had won rather than because he was a, a he, because he liked to show off. We're talking about the college admissions bribery scandal with Melissa Korn, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, who covers higher education, and Jennifer Levitz, a national reporter for The Wall Street Journal. They're co-authors of the book Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. And what was his appeal with these wealthy, you know, high-profile parents, Jennifer Levitz? How was he able to convince them that he could deliver? Well, these were were parents who were who were often very successful, and they had put their kids in in the best schools. And I think they had hopes that you know they would continue along in these elite circles uh, into very good schools. And college is competitive, but it's extremely competitive if you're looking at just the narrow list of colleges, uh, which was often the case with with these parents. So. They would go into the guidance counselor's their school and they'd find out, you know, um, Johnny is, is probably not going to get into USC or Georgetown. You need a backup plan B. Well, Rick Singer became known as the guy, you know, that would tell you yes, the guy that could get your kid into school. And word traveled about him. And I think he was appealing for that reason, but also because of his personality, uh, the traits that Melissa described. Um, if you're someone who really just wants something done and does not want to go through a year of agony or if you're just intensely anxious about your kid's future, here's somebody who is confident and certain and knows the system and is telling you, I have a way that you can do this. Um, sure, you can go the back door and pay a large donation but and you know contribute toward a building, but that's not a guarantee. I'm going to give you a guarantee. Uh, in this side door um, where I can boost the test. And you can just imagine a guarantee with college was so appealing to people um, as to how he got people to do it. It really, it really ranges. Some parents hired him for legal college counseling and then went with him like that for months. And then at some point started to cross the line in other cases, it seemed they almost came to him for that mm. as word traveled. So there were, um, there were, it was really, it really ranged. Um, it was, 
it just seemed that he he was someone who 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 smartly saw this need in the market and met it. And Melissa Court, I mean, you also talk about how the uber competitive and status symbol that college that that we know <laughs> I think of colleges now, it wasn't always the case. Like that really this has been a development in the last 30 years or so. And I, I'm wondering um how you feel like that also drew wealthy families to what Singer was selling. Right. A generation ago, it used to be that going to college was enough to make you stand out, right? Having a college degree would put you on the path towards success in a career. Uh, as more people graduated from high school and pursued college, uh, you needed something that differentiated you a little bit more. So you started to see much more focus on particular elite, super selective uh brand name colleges. At the same time, beginning in the 80s, US News and World Report started issuing its college rankings, which very quickly turned from ranking the best college to essentially ranking the families that choose those colleges, right? If if you're settling for a school that's number 70 on the rankings, but that other family at the cocktail party is chatting about their kid going to the school that's number 20, they must have done something better. They must have done something right. So it, that competition really ratcheted up as rankings uh, kind of took hold in, in the national psyche of how you determine what is a good school. And the conversation, you lost some of that nuance of what's a good school for little Johnny? And it turned into just what's the better school period by, by the rankings. At the same time, you had students start to get more anxious about whether they'd get in. So they would apply to more schools. Uh, and you'd see the admit rate at some of these schools decline because the class sizes aren't necessarily growing. Uh, and then the admit rate would decline again the next year as application volume rose. And it was this vicious cycle. And it really, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a very warped view of the world because if you look just a little bit more broadly, there are so many good schools that admit more students. Uh, and just because a school is selective does, or more selective doesn't mean it's better. But a lot of the parents who worked with Singer, not all, but a lot, and a lot of parents, period, just don't, aren't quite willing to broaden their, broaden their view of, or their definition of what would make a good school for their kid. And so how did this ultimately unravel, Melissa Korn? I mean, the, this, this scheme, how did investigators get wind of it? Yeah, it, it was actually fascinating because it uh, was almost accidental. Uh, prosecutors in Boston were looking at a securities fraud case that had been referred by the SEC, and they were trying to get one person involved in that, a guy who lived in Los Angeles, to cooperate. And in that cooperation discussion, he had to kind of spill and tell everything about himself, warts and all, because you know they don't want some secret to come out and undermine his ability to cooperate. Uh, so they looked through his financials and came across some payments that he had been making to a bank account in Connecticut. And they asked him what it was about. And he admitted to paying money to Yale's then women's soccer coach to help flag his daughter as a recruited soccer player so that she could get into Yale. Uh, they were fairly stunned by that. Um, but, you know, played it cool enough at the, in the moment, ended up being able to flip the soccer coach, uh, got him to talk to Rick Singer on the phone a number of times after they learned who Singer was. They didn't even know who Singer was initially. It was the coach who mentioned Singer's name. 
And then they were able to get enough of Singer on recorded calls that a few months into the investigation, they flipped Singer and had him cooperate, at which point he handed over his entire Rolodex and did scripted calls recorded uh, out of the office in Boston and from made house visits back out in California while wearing a wire and was able to get a lot of these clients uh, with, with pretty hard evidence. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, Singer pleaded guilty to charges of racketeering and money laundering fraud and even obstructing his role because a couple of times he did let the parents know that he had a wire on or he would suggest that they were being uh, that their phones were tapped or that his phone was tapped. Uh, and then Jennifer Corn, the parents were often found guilty for things like mail services fraud or conspiracy to commit uh, mail fraud. I mean, can you talk about what parents were were often found guilty of in this process? Yeah, sure. So most of the parents were uh, accused of, of something called honest services fraud and, uh, and some sort of mail fraud and conspiracy. And that is, is what they were um, ultimately pleaded to. Uh, they pleaded to uh, working with, with Rick Singer. So this was a criminal conspiracy. Uh, you needed one person, Singer, to bribe the coaches and rig the test, and then the parent to write the check. So once the parent had written the check, uh, plus, you know, made up cover stories, posed the kid as athletes, slide them off the testing sites. Um, so a number of them were, they pleaded guilty to, uh, to conspiring with Rick Singer. Uh, there were people who had additional, uh, pro additional problems for writing everything off on their taxes. And, and they would send rate. these, they would make these checks out to Singer's foundation, basically, right, to try to cover it up as well. That's right. That was part of the appeal of his of the scam as well. Uh, in for the parents who who pleaded guilty, they um, they admitted that they wrote checks to to Rick Singer's foundation, and then he would then tell them, "Great, got the money," and then they would get something back saying, "No goods or services were exchanged for right, this." That and tax the write off. Could, <laughs> the parent could send it to their accountant, and you could feel like you were, uh, I suppose, uh, and maybe tell yourself you were you were doing something good for somebody. Now, uh, as far as did this charity do anything good, uh, we found that it did do some good work, but it seemed that in large part it was a front. Yes. We're talking with Jennifer Levitz and Melissa Korn of The Wall Street Journal about the college admissions bribery scandal. And I would love to get your reactions, listeners. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, with your questions and thoughts. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or email us at forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break, including an interview that the uh, journalist did with one of the children of the parents who tried to get their kids in this way. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest developments in the college admissions scandal and learning more about the man who exploited a system to help wealthy parents bribe their way into sending their kids to top schools with Melissa Korn, a Wall Street Journal reporter who covers higher education, and Jennifer Levitz, a national reporter for the Wall Street Journal. They're co-authors of Unacceptable Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Send us your comments, questions. We're at 
KQED Forum on Twitter and Facebook. On email, we're at forum at kqed.org. And you can also call us. You can also call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Wendy writes, when it comes to cheating, what about college essays? Some students get them edited by parents, teachers, and even paid consultants. Some get no help. Colleges should rent a room and have students show up and write their essays in three to four hours with no access to the web or their phones. Mary writes, I taught AP English to one of the students caught up in the scandal. She was a hardworking, intelligent young woman who certainly would have been accepted on her own merits to a variety of excellent colleges. The fact that this student and her parents felt the need to cheat in order to get into a brand name university reveals the toxicity of the current college admissions environment. Melissa Korn, what, what Mary writes there really does echo the sentiment of some of the kids you know, talking about how they were so disappointed that their parents didn't believe in them. I think it was Felicity Huffman's daughter who you quoted as saying something like, why didn't you believe in me to get in on my own? Um, and then one of the other kids that you interviewed was um, a boy named Matteo Sloan. Can you tell us about him and what he shared with you about how he felt about all of this that is basically his dad really masterminded for him? Yeah, so Mateo's father, Devin Sloan, pleaded guilty in the case. He uh, set his son up with a Speedo and the water polo equipment to take some pictures in the backyard, uh, in the backyard pool. And Mateo was pitched to USC as a water polo recruit. Uh, Mateo did not play water polo at that level. Uh, so he didn't really know what was going on. And he told us, you know, he did what his dad asked him to, because that's kind of what you do when you're a kid and you trust your dad. And he was so devastated and so angry when his father first came home from that first day he was arrested back in March, 2019. And, you know, similar kind of tone asked, you know, why, why did you do this? Why didn't you believe in me? Why didn't you think I could do this on my own? Those sorts of questions. And that, Anger, you know, when uh, when he spoke a few months later, uh, he was quite thoughtful and really said he um, was he was more sad than anything that his father thought that he had to do that 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 was a path that he felt it was necessary to take in any way, um, and he said one of the hardest things was acknowledging that he didn't push back more on his parents who were so focused on particular schools. Mateo didn't said that he didn't really care what the admit rate was for a particular, whatever school he went to. He just wanted to go to a school where he could kind of find himself and explore and have some fun and learn. And uh, it didn't need to be USC. He wasn't the one who was so hung up on that name brand, but his parents, especially his father, did seem to be more so. So his, kind of the, the moral of the story for, for Mateo and for I think a lot of these children was, you know, give the kids a little more breathing room, let them find their path. They'll probably be just fine. As that AP English teacher said, you know, the, these were, these were for the most part, bright and motivated and interesting, well-connected teens who would have fared just fine on their own. Hmm. Well, let me go to Ken in San Francisco. Hi, Ken, join us. Hey, good morning. Uh, I remember my junior and senior years of high school as nothing was more important than the SATs and the choice of colleges. It was both a time of 
uh, excitement and worry. And I'm just incredulous when I follow this story from the beginning that there seems to be uh, no uh, accusation to the students. They had to know what was going on. And I know Felicity Huffman said her kids didn't know. But I'm just incredulous at this statement that the kids didn't really know what was going on. Of course, you're going to know if someone's sitting in for an exam for you, the most important one of your school uh, life. Ken, thanks. And that was one of the first questions I remember at that huge press conference that the U.S. attorneys held Jennifer Levitt's like, did the kids know and how could they not? It's a great question. Uh, okay, so some of the kids did not, uh, according to the U.S. attorneys and the prosecutors, did not know. The parents kept them out of it. Um, some of the kids did know. And you think, well, how could they have not known? And in some cases, they went to some pretty great lengths to keep them from knowing where they'd have the kids, remember the kids were going in with these special testing circumstances. So they're already going in and sitting in their own room or doing something like that. And then they would even tell them, okay, you're going to write your test down on this separate piece of paper. This is the way we're doing it for you. And then Mark Riddell, the kid would leave. And then Mark Riddell, a singer's corrupt proctor, would come in and, and write up, fix the test. Uh, so in those cases, and there was a few cases with the, the coaching thing where uh, they, they concocted these phony resumes with Photoshop pictures off the Internet, and then someone else you know, hit the button to send it to the colleges. So there, there were some cases where it was pretty obvious that the kids didn't know. Like there was one, one young man who actually went to USC for orientation, and he got into the meeting, and an advisor said, I see you run track. He said, no, I don't. Uh, and he called his mom and said, Mom, they think I run track. What's going on? And she frantically called Rick Singer, who had to call his sources at USC and make up some excuse. But the caller is right. There were, there were other cases where the kids were brought in on it. They, they knew that Mark Riddell was there. He was right next to them in some cases. They were posing. They were asked, being asked to kind of tell some cover-up stories or send some emails that, that with essays that they knew contained information that wasn't true. So the question became what, what to do with those kids. And in the beginning, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office said the investigation is ongoing. We're going to continue to look at them. Uh, we believe the parents are the primary drivers, but we're not going to say that the kids won't be charged. But they've never charged any of, of the kids. Um, mm -hmm. And they instead they did send some letters to parents saying, um, send some letters to some of the kids saying, you know, you are a potential target of the investigation. But we think that was probably more to get the parents to come to the table and plead. Um, so, you know, what's happened to those kids? What's their, you know, how, what, what, why haven't they paid a price? The, I think in a number of cases they have, the schools have uh, have taken different approaches, but some have kicked the kids out. Um, and, the you know, certainly they have disdain on their record. But I think that to, to sum it up, I think the overarching feeling was that in a lot of cases, these were minors. They were, the parents were sort of orchestrating this whole thing. Um, it did come back on the parents at sentencing. If you had involved your kid in an active way, you got more prison time. Hmm. 
And uh, let me go to Kim in Oakland next. Hi, Kim. Hello. And so my comment is, is that um, the universities did not suffer any penalties as a result of this because many of the universities knew that this was going on. And the parents should have been fined to the point where they would have to put money into like an escrow based upon their self-worth to pay for some uh, scholarships for some of the kids that's underprivileged who had to go through the regular route to get into these universities and who's shadowed with debt right now. And also the university should have to use some of their endowment money as a fine to pay scholarships for the underprivileged during those times when those kids were let in. Kim, I'm so glad you bring up the colleges because, Melissa Corn. I mean, have you found any real evidence that this whole process has caused colleges, universities to really examine their systems. I mean, before even this, we all know that there's special treatment for kids who have parents who give major donations. There's legacy students. There's a high percentage of spots that go to the wealthiest families at universities. And whether there's been a real evaluation of why that is and why that isn't fair. Yeah, I think a lot of schools in the wake of this scandal uh, made proclamations that there would be some soul searching and some introspection and some uh, moments of reflection. And uh, I think we saw some say, okay, we'll audit our applications a little bit more now. So if you put on your resume that you were president of this club or captain of this team, we'll try to check that out a little bit more. But they also acknowledge with the volume of applications applications they get, they just can't do that for everybody. There is so much trust just baked into the system and that's really not gonna change. Um, I think this scandal taken alongside a trial, um, a lawsuit and then a civil trial at Harvard in fall of 2018 that I also covered really exposed kind of a lot of things that people who are in higher ed know about, but still shock the public uh, regarding those preferences for donors, kids, for legacies, for recruited athletes. Um, and I think at the end of the day, you know, the schools have said, we're not gonna stop taking donations. We wouldn't, you know, the institutions would cease to exist without, uh, without such charitable support. Now, how much preference they give to families who make those donations, it's not always clear. There's no hard dollar figure for what counts or doesn't. And there's, you know, it, it really varies by institution and it varies by the, the applicant. Uh, I think in light of the pandemic and some of the financial challenges that many schools are now facing, it would almost be harder for them to ignore if a family is noting we can pay full price. Oh, and by the way, we noticed you need a new atrium in that building or gosh, that track's looking a little tired. We can probably help with that. It's really hard to ignore that right now uh, in light of these other financial pressures for the schools. But so I'd also, like to think yes. that this would have, yeah, I'd like to think that this would have kind of changed everything and this will become pure meritocracy now, but that, that's pretty doubtful. Well, the other thing that Kim raises, I think, is just the fact that it took away from a potential spot for a qualified 
applicant uh, when kids who were unqualified were let in in these sort of backdoor ways. And then Anne writes, the scandal has made it harder for kids whose learning disabilities aren't caught early in school. Our child was assessed late into high school. The college board granted accommodations, but oddly only things our child didn't need. The scandal has made it that much harder on parents who have to, at great sacrifice, pay for their child to be tested when districts won't and students whose learning disabilities are, are caught late. And in addition to that, Jennifer Levitz, it also sounds like, I mean, the, it has really cast doubt on kids who claim learning differences and need this additional time because it's really sort of stained that process to some extent as well, right? We heard that from so many families. They were really worried. I mean, there's, there's, there are many kids who get these accommodations who, who really need them. And as the, as the caller said, uh, these, it's expensive to be tested, and we've heard of families doing you know, long um, battles almost with school districts to try to get help with this. So it, it casts a doubt on on those kids. It makes it harder for them. Um, it also, as you mentioned, uh, there there is this backdrop victim there. You know, legally, the case made the colleges the victim. The colleges were, were you know, allegedly defrauded by a corrupt employee. The colleges lost the spot. But I think everyone knows who the real victim is. The real victim is the families who played by the rules or the kid who didn't get in because it's, it's a zero-sum game. One kid gets in and another kid doesn't. Well, Maddie tweets, sorry that some of these privileged white children had to deal with manipulative parents, but this scandal is especially devastating to low income and students of color who face major challenges to attaining higher education. The admission system is deeply flawed in more ways than one. Gail writes, there's also a culture of it's not what you know, it's who you know, where the connections you make in college are more important than the education. Let me go next to Stephen in Napa. Hi, Stephen. Join us. Hello, Nina. Thank you guys for taking this call. Uh, I just wanted to comment. Uh, it, it, I agree with the comments that were just made by the caller, the fact that, you know, woe is me, uh, you know, my child didn't know. It's like, no, you're, you've really just made it worse for low-income people, and it, you, you increase the inequity gap. And then also, you, you know, the people that these students that did get in, you know, this whole idea that they didn't know, you're taking pictures and then, it's just setting up for victimhood. My parents victimized me. And then what, what does that say for the future generations of those privileged kids? And I can say that, like, you know, uh, in my experience, I just got ex I was accepted to Stanford in 2018. Uh, I went through a veteran accelerator program. I'm 40 years old. I recently just graduated from the University of San Francisco. And I didn't have to take SATs coming in as a Stanford student. I can tell you that now they're looking at people holistically um, as far as for like the graduate program, they say that because of the COVID thing that they're going to do some testing is required at some later date, but also USF did the same thing and accommodated me with my learning disabilities. And I also, it was all based on my essay that I did for the school because I didn't have to take an SAD on the undergraduate side of the house. And I just want to thank you for letting me say that my piece and I'll take comments off there. Yeah, we really appreciate you saying that, Stephen, and, and I'm also glad that you had a, a more positive experience. I mean, one of the schools that did come up a ton in all of this was USC, Melissa Korn. I mean, Singer had a very special relationship with USC, even pushing students like Mateo Sloan, who had no interest in going there, into that school, because that's where he could make the connections that's where he had the corrupt networks, right? And and so that if he got those kids in there, he could keep increasing his, quote, wins that he could then sell to other potential clients. I mean, has USC commented about this very much? 
Right. We talk in the book a great deal about how USC was kind of this prime spot for Singer to focus on uh, because they were in the middle of a massive fundraising campaign. It seemed that just every part of the university was for sale. You know, every there was a placard everywhere, you know, who donated what. Uh, and when you mix that with the an interest by the school in, in moving up the league tables, in boosting its reputation as a, kind of as a powerhouse school, you start to run into some trouble perhaps, especially if you don't have somebody minding some of those gates. So it was uh, almost easy pickings for, for Singer in some ways. He worked with multiple coaches. He had a relationship, a professional relationship with um, an athletics administrator. Some of them have pleaded guilty. Some of them have pleaded not guilty uh, to criminal charges, but it, it really, was just the perfect spot for him to focus on. Uh, and yeah, once he kind of started to have a track record with some of these students, he could then turn to other families and say, listen, I have a great relationship with USC. I got this, I can work out a deal for you. And then that would build on itself. You know, it, it, college counseling is a word of mouth referral industry, very much so. So once he started to rack up those wins at a place like USC, where the where the admission rate had been plummeting, it was harder and harder to get in. Uh, working through him looked all the more appealing. And USC hasn't really had to answer for, say, their own practices. I mean, I think I remember you writing about how there was a little bit of scrutiny about how they, they did fundraising and, and did note, you know, which applicants had parents who were donors or VIPs. Right, so there, uh, through through the court proceedings, a bunch of documents came out showing uh, various members of the school administration flagging families saying, you know, father is surgeon or that they made a particular size donation uh, in the, and kind of flagged that to the admissions office to say, hey, this is somebody you guys should pay attention to and perhaps let in because they can do good things for our school. Uh, and that was quite embarrassing for the university to have that out in public. They tried to um, make it so that those documents couldn't be released in court, but they were released. I think, you know, USC has said that they uh, take students on their merits, but that donations are a, an important part of their institutional advancement uh, strategy. Uh, they're still going through kind of how, how to address this and how to move on from it. They've cleaned house in a lot of areas. Um, there's a lot of new faces, both on the athletic side and the admission side right now. Uh, there's also a new president at the university. And I think uh, it'll be really interesting to see what they do in coming years in terms of uh, putting that donation kind of element so front and center as they had in the past. Well, Marie writes, this makes me so angry. Another element contributing to the extreme inequity in our current toxic environment. April writes, people complain about affirmative action. This admission scandal shows that money and white privilege are the biggest affirmative action programs. Jennifer Levitz, it is interesting that these parents did end up with prison time. I was pretty struck by the coverage of the court proceedings and how it was very surprising to people that Felicity Huffman actually got a 14-day sentence since I believe she contributed about $15,000 for cheating on uh, for her kid cheating on the SAT when so many other parents contributed tens of thousands on top of that, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Can you talk about how her sentencing affected uh, 
defense attorneys who are going to be putting their clients forward as well. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, they're, 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 and the first group of cases, about a dozen parents, a bunch of parents pleaded guilty all at once, and they were all sentenced pretty in pretty quick short order by one judge in Boston, uh, Indira Talwani, in federal court in Boston. And it really did look like many of them were headed for probation. That's because in federal sentencing uh, in court, in guidelines, you, you tie the amount of prison someone gets to the dollar amount that the victim lost. Well, they ran into a problem in that when the probation who advises the judge looked at this, they couldn't really put a figure out a, a dollar amount that the universities had lost and people had actually given money to the university program. So it, technically, there was almost no victim, no financial loss. So it actually, for a moment, looked like many of these people were going to just proceed and get probation. And you saw a little bit of a confidence boost, a little happiness among some of these defense lawyers. But, and this goes back to a couple of comments that your, your listeners made. The judge is free to do, to, to not abide by that. She can give people prison if she wants. And she looked at this and she said to, to people, uh, it's not that you're, you're wealthy. I'm not penalizing you for that. It's essentially that you were already so far down the line. You were already on third base. You had access to the best SAT tutors. You had summer internship programs, summer, uh, you know, all kinds of private schools, hands-on attention for the kids, the ability to make donations, club sports that got your kids to the front of the line there, that you had all those advantages, and then you went that extra step to get that last advantage when all these other kids uh, behind them weren't even out of the batter box. And so that was her, her thinking. And so that's why she did give prison to um, – to all the parents, um, starting with Felicity Huffman, who you mentioned had had paid the just about the least and was was, was considered one of the two most least uh, culpable parents. Um, she said that was one reason she gave. She also said that she was well aware that the public was watching and that there was a larger issue here of fairness and inequity, and that even for the sake of, of Felicity Hoffman and some of the other parents, if they had just gotten probation, she's like, you will not be able to move on with your life. People will be so mad at you. Um, and third, the reason why she gave prison is, so judges said they give sentences based on two things. They want to deter the person, the offender, and they want to send a message to society. So she would tell them, look, I don't think you're going to go do this again. I think you've learned your lesson. I probably don't need to send you to prison to deter you but I think I need to deter your friends. And also, I mean, she, the, the prosecutors noted the sentencing differential. I mean, you would have people who just falsified a school address get 10 days in jail if they didn't have any wealth or privilege as well. Um, yeah, so all of those factors. Let me bring Marie from Petaluma into the conversation. Hi, Marie, join us. Hi, get out of the range here. Hi there, thanks for having me. Sure, go right ahead. Um, I wanted to do to push back a little bit on the idea of how much donations to private schools uh, matter in admissions. I used to be a fundraiser for an Ivy League school, and we used to joke about how it was almost inversely proportionate to how much money p 
parents gave to whether or not their kids would get into to, to the college. Well, so, Marie, yeah. You know, I, think, I think there's, sure, there's a few bad apples out there, and I think USC is kind of proving that point. But I think overall, that is not as much a driving force as I think people are leading other people to believe. Well, Marie, thanks for saying that. And and I think in some ways, Melissa Korn, your book is saying that too, that they realized that donations were not a guarantee. So that's why they felt the pressure to take this additional step with Singer. There are some parents who are fighting back, who are saying that they were victimized by Singer, that they didn't realize he was going to go that far. Do you think that that's possible, Melissa Korn? Right. A number of parents, while we've had dozens of people plead guilty, uh, many sentenced to this point, there are a number who have said they maintained their innocence and are planning to take this to trial, uh, expected to start uh, early next year. And I think, you know, they listen, everyone is allowed to defend themselves, right? Uh, so they are receiving the evidence. They are saying, I was under the impression that this is just how things were done. Uh, Singer told me only limited information. Uh, you know, he didn't tell me where the money that I sent to him or to his charity was going. How could I know that it was being used to pay somebody off? Uh, that that sort of thing is kind of the, the general theme of, of the defense arguments. And we'll have to see what a jury says. Yes. Um, but, you know, we, this is going to continue to drag on for many months. And some coaches have also pleaded not guilty uh, in saying, you know, this was not a quid pro quo. I wasn't uh, taking money in order to admit some, you know, in exchange for uh, flagging somebody as a recruit so that they could get into school. And ultimately, what does Rick Singer face? Uh, you know, Singer, um, he... The, the max is many, many, many years. He, having cooperated, uh, he will make a case for a more lenient sentence, but he likely, because he's a cooperator, won't be sentenced until after the cases for the others mostly wrap up. So he's out now awaiting sentencing and there's no date yet set for his sentencing. Can you just say quickly in the last 30 seconds that we have just you know, the unprecedented nature of this prosecution and what potential impact it might have. Yeah, More this was, uh, as prosecutor said, the largest uh, college admissions scam ever that they've ever prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice. It's, you know, dozens and dozens of parents and coaches were involved, such high, uh, high profile institutions. I think it really shattered any remaining illusions of meritocracy and fairness in admissions. And I think it's a, it's a reminder that uh, just lying on an application is potentially an actual crime. Melissa Korn, reporter for The Wall Street Journal covering higher education. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. And Jennifer Levitz, national reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks to you as well. Thank you. They're the co-authors of Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the making of the college admission scandal. Thanks also to our listeners for their questions and comments. Jameson Weiss produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.